G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As a Christian who believes God created the heavens and the earth, we are never really confounded by the thought that another experiment or that a research expedition will prove our faith wrong. Rather, we look forward to new scientific discoveries, shedding more light on the truth of God as Creator. Right now, all eyes are this week on the long-awaited launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. It's due to be launched in the next 24 hours, and the primary aim is to shed light on our cosmic origins. The team at Creation Ministries International will be following the progress of the James Webb Space Telescope. Scott Devlin is a geophysicist and a student of astrophysics. He's a speaker and the marketing coordinator for Creation Ministries and back with us. Hello, Scott. Welcome back to 2020. Hi, Neil. Great to be with you again. Scott, the James Webb Space Telescope, it's dubbed the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. Do you know how much better than the Hubble, the James Webb Telescope is? Well, this is an interesting question, Neil, because um, it's slightly different to the Hubble Space Telescope. So the Hubble Space Telescope is mainly a visual telescope. So in the visible electromagnetic spectrum is where most of the Hubble's ability is, whereas the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be primarily an infrared space telescope. So um, both of them space telescopes, so they're above the Earth's atmosphere, which is very useful because we have a lot of telescopes on the ground. But of course, the Earth's atmosphere, very usefully to us as humans, blocks out a lot of electromagnetic radiation. It doesn't block out visible um, electromagnetic radiation, thankfully, because that's how we can see and that's how photosynthesis works. But it, it blocks out a lot of uh, what we could see in the universe. So that's why we put all this effort into putting telescopes into space. And yeah, the Hubble is mainly the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum, where the James Webb Space Telescope will be mainly the infrared. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope, um, the mirror is only a third of the size of the James Webb Space Telescope. So already we can see that there's going to be more clarity with the James Webb Space Telescope. But when you include the fact that it's in the infrared, it gives it some other unique abilities. Okay, so as I understand it, sharper images and a focus on this, as you call it, the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's going to be able to see through those clouds in the universe and give a clearer picture of what's going on. Is that one way of describing it? Yeah, that that's one of the advantages of infrared is that it, it um, penetrates dust clouds easily, more easily. So there are lots of gas and dust clouds within the universe and to penetrate them, the infrared is a better better part of the electromagnetic spectrum to to look um, so and as you said it's, it's going to be more clarity as well so I was saying it's three times the diameter the James Webb is three times the diameter of the Hubble and so that's going to give about 
10 times sharper image in the where they cross over in range because visible and infrared there's a small crossover there and there's a crossover between the hubble and the james webb so it's going to be 10 times sharper in the crossover uh, section but uh, yes the infrared is going to afford some extra abilities like seeing through dust and gas clouds and also seeing further so Looking for life on other planets, some of the features of this telescope are going to give an enhanced opportunity to do that. And and I guess when we're Christians and we appreciate God being the creator of the heavens and the earth, we're going to be very interested in what sort of findings, what sort of outcomes come as pictures start to come in from this new telescope. How do you think as Christians we would be feeling about that? Yeah, that's a good question. We talked about this a little bit last time. I think it was about a year ago, and we were talking about the same telescope because, of course, this has been delayed a long time before the launch. And, yeah, so one of the abilities, so we haven't mentioned this about infrared yet, but actually a lot of the molecules that uh, we would expect to find in a planet's atmosphere, if there was life on that planet, uh, those the vibrational modes of those molecules are in the infrared uh, part of the spectrum. So looking in infrared, with some of the hopes of a lot of astronomers is that maybe we might be able to find an atmosphere that could contain the right conditions for life. And yeah, as, uh, to answer your question, as Christians, what, what should we expect? And yeah, we, we were talking about that last time. I remember a lot of radio listeners called in and people had a difference of opinions. But yeah, what my understanding from the Bible is that uh, the earth is the center of God's creation. And I think we summarized it like this, that Jesus, he came to as our kinsman redeemer. And so he had to come in human form. So if God had created intelligent life, and that's often the question on people's mind, did God create intelligent life elsewhere? But really, if God had created intelligent life elsewhere, then um, Jesus wouldn't be able to be their savior. And so it doesn't seem likely that God would do something like that. And he certainly doesn't mention it in the Bible. And he certainly says the earth and people are the pinnacle of his creation. So if there's life elsewhere, there'd be need for another redemption plan for wherever that life might be. So fairly simple to say that here we are, the pinnacle of God's creation, and he has a redemption plan for us. So we're likely to be the only ones getting that plan happening. There's some big questions, though, that arise, aren't there, Scott? Because people will think of planets and stars and galaxies, and oftentimes they're measured in light years. And sometimes the thought that the distance between a star and here is longer than we might think of as the creation account might allow for uh, in the Bible. How do we account for those sorts of things? And will the new telescope shed any more light on that? Yeah, that's a really good question, Neil, and something I'm quite passionate for people to understand, because really, as this James Webb Space Telescope goes up, and we start hearing a lot of news reports, we're going to hear about the first galaxies, or we're going to hear about uh, galaxies and stars that are billions of light years away. And they'll actually even say these were the first ones to be created after the Big Bang, 12 billion or 13 billion light, uh, years ago. Now, obviously, that doesn't fit with the Bible's timeline. And what's most important about that, which is what I'm passionate about, is actually, if we think about this uh, logically with the Bible's timeline of having uh, sin uh, come before death, then there's an issue. If we start trying to incorporate this storyline of uh, 
the creation starting billions of years ago, we have this problem of death happening before sin. And that's a real issue for the gospel. Death happening before sin, because we would appreciate, uh, because Jesus refers to Adam and Eve in Genesis as real-time history. And so in order to, in fact, understand more deeply that uh, the creation account is in fact history uh, because Jesus said it was. Uh, That's an important element in what we talk about when we discuss creation in this shorter time span. Yes, and often, uh, even in some of our top Bible schools today, we have a lot of people theorizing about how they can incorporate the theory of evolution and the billions of years into the Genesis timeline. But really, the issue with it is not just the inherency of the Bible, which of course is is a big issue, uh, but it's also the, the gospel is at stake because Jesus came to undo the effects of sin. And really, the ultimate effect of sin was death. And in Genesis 3, verse 19, we see the effect of the curse, which says, to dust you shall return. So the reason Jesus came is obviously to redeem us and, and uh, to raise us from the dead so we could live forever with him. But the effect of the, he's come, so in a, in a way, he's come to undo the original curse. And if that original curse didn't produce death, then we're left with the question, and it's a logical inconsistency as a Christian, because what we've got to say is, why did Jesus come then? If death was not a result of the curse, if Adam wasn't the one who introduced death, then why did Jesus come? And the reason you have to ask that question, if you accept the billions of years and the story of evolution is, because quite firmly in that story is the story of death happening over billions of years. And this is where I guess astrophysics um, and cosmology kind of links with geology, because when we think about the rock record, so that's all the rock below our feet. There's a lot of dead animals in there, and we call them fossils uh, because it's no longer bones. The bones have turned to rock, and those fossils are a record of death. And uh, humans only come much later on that record. So therefore, if accepting the evolutionary timeline, we have all of this death, disease, and suffering in the fossil record, and we have it all coming before Adam and Eve. So that's a very different history to what the Bible says. And so this is uh, a reason why accepting billions of years is not only an issue for the inerrancy of the Bible, it's also an issue for the reason that Jesus came. So with the James Webb Telescope about to be launched, and it's been a long time coming, there's a probably, this might be even the start of a whole journey in which we'll follow along with you, Scott, but the sorts of outcomes we would be as Christians expecting to show that these discoveries are entirely consistent with the biblical account, but there are some more naturalistic scientists who want to be able to frame their outcomes in a very different way. So how would we think about the differences as to how different scientists might look at the outcomes and the discoveries of the telescope? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because, um, I, and and you asked this question earlier, I'm not sure I fully answered it, but you were talking about uh, light years. And often when we talk about distances in the universe, we're talking about light years. And so something that needs to be made clear is a light year is a distance, it's not actually a time. So at one light year is the amount of uh, the distance that light would travel in a year. So that's a distance and not a time. So when we talk about Um, 10 billion light years away, that's a very, very long distance. 
Now, because light, as we measured it over the last century, it's never changed speed. It's always been the same speed. It's um, about 300,000 kilometers per second. It's very fast. Uh, that th The idea is if um, light were to come from that galaxy or star that's 10 or 20 billion light years away, then it would take a very long time for it to reach us. Now, there's a few formulas that go into that because if you believe the Big Bang history, then you put the formula in that tells you what the expansion history was because if, if you, you've probably heard about the idea that the universe is expanding. So in the past, that star used to be much closer to us. But even with um, the Big Bang history, you still end up with a time of the order of billions of years. Now, of course, if you have a different model of the universe, a different cosmology, then uh, you don't necessarily need that billions of years. But, but uh, you know, generally, we're not told that there are other alternative cosmologies out there. We're only really told about the, the Big Bang. So when I say cosmology, it's just the scientific theory of the whole universe, how it came to be, the history of the universe. And that's what I mean when I say cosmology. Scott, is that the same as saying when you're a Christian and you believe the Genesis account, you're believing when God created the heavens and the earth, he created a grown-up universe? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And he, in effect, he did. He created everything that was ready and working. And um, that day, I mean, Adam and Eve, they would have needed to eat in the first week of being alive. So we expect the plants were fully mature. And and yes, this relates to even the basic, most basic astrophysics when we talk about stars and we, we learn about the sun and we're told the sun is four and a half billion years old. And of course, that's based on some maps that says, okay, this is uh, the formula for nuclear fusion within the center of our sun. And this is how fast the sun is burning through its fuel. Therefore, if we go back in time, we can calculate when the sun first formed. And we can also go forward in time and calculate when the sun's going to run out of fuel and eventually stop. But of course, um, as Bible believers, we know that the sun didn't form by naturalistic processes, but it was actually uh, made by divine fiat, by God creating it. So he would have created it with a certain amount of fuel in it. And so it would certainly look to someone who believes only in naturalism and not in the supernatural. It would certainly look to them as though it were much older. At a time when there is so much anticipation because seriously it has taken decades to get to a point for the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. It's about to be launched. It'll be the successor of the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're taking some time to talk about some astrophysics and what we understand as Christians who believe God is the creator because that's what the Bible teaches in the book of Genesis. Scott Devlin is a geophysicist and a student of astrophysics. He's a speaker and the marketing coordinator for Creation Ministries. Scott, if we were talking about the possibility or the impossibility of what could happen with the creation account or with the naturalist idea of what happens in the universe, you can't get away from the very, very significant understanding that without a creator you can have nothing because nothing comes from nothing. We are actually back to there must be a God if there is anything at all. How do you get around that so far as what uh, we're anticipating with the new telescope. Yes, and the competing theory is 
what we're often told is the Big Bang. And then the question then is, oh, well, what happens before the Big Bang? And so the, the best theory they've got at the moment is that we came from a quantum fluctuation. And you go into the complicated uh, world of quantum physics to try and understand that. But, but the premise still stands that you've said is precisely, you can then ask, well, where did the quantum fluctuation come from? So, so just to summarize, the Big Bang is the idea that the universe is very big at the moment, but it was, it's expanded over millennia and over billions of years. And so if you rewind time, you go back to a finite point. And then the question is, well, where did that point from come from? And then you say, oh, the quantum fluctuation. But you, it's, you can keep regressing and keep having the same problem. Um, to have a beginning, you need a creator. Um, the, there must be a cause for, and, and then the, there must be a cause as well. So yeah, there, they're the two competing ideas. But yeah, one of the, probably the biggest problems with naturalism, uh, the idea that everything is naturalistic is, well, what happened at the very start? There's a necessary, there's, you, we necessarily need a supernatural creation, whatever kind of story you want to make up after that. Is it a fair thing to suggest that even with the new big expedition, the new big space telescope, these sorts of things, in fact, are an effort to try to disprove the presence of a creator God because that naturalistic-driven science that wants to see where the origins are and at the same time to disprove the biblical account? And certainly some of those working on the science that comes out of it will have that as a motivation. But I would say the majority of people, are, are they're already in the frame of naturalism and they don't even realize it. Um, or maybe they don't understand that there's another option, that we can have a supernatural creator. And therefore, a lot of their theories would have to be changed. But uh, I guess you could kind of also ask the question, is it worth it? Um, should we really be spending billions of dollars on new telescopes to have a look what's out there when our very premise is flawed that there was a naturalistic beginning? And I'd probably answer, yeah, it's still interesting. It's still worth it because at the end, of the, while they say we're seeing the first galaxies that were ever formed billions of years ago in the distant um, past, uh, we could still say what we're actually seeing is very distant galaxies. Whether they were the first formed is a, is a question that we don't know the answer to. Whether they were formed billions of years is a question that, as Christians, we would certainly say, no, they weren't formed that long ago because we know the history of the world as it is in the Bible. So we come back to that concept of what some call starlight time and the distances. When we start to think of large distances that are beyond the way we think about the time frame of a Genesis account. So when you're talking to groups of Christians who are asking these sorts of questions, is there a simple answer that you give to them? Yes, good question. So so the problem here is, well, we've got stars that are very far away. We can see them now. So how has there been enough time to allow the light from that star to reach us? And actually, you don't even need to go to the very, the very most furthest away galaxies and stars to have that question be a problem. You can even look at, say, the Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearest galaxy to us. Uh, that's two and a half million light years away. And so if we were to use naturalistic assumptions, we would say that, um, I mean, you have to put a small formula in there to calculate the expansion history, but basically you would say that took two and a half million 
years for the light from the Andromeda galaxy to get to us Earth. So that's the reason when we look in our telescope and we see the Andromeda galaxy, we can see it now because at least two and a half million years has passed. That's why we can see it. Now, that would be true if and only if a number of prerequisites are met, including that the distance between us and the Andromeda galaxy has stayed the same in that time, and also that the space between us and the galaxy has remained a vacuum. Now, that's interesting because if you have a lot of mass in between that space, you can have effects of time dilation, which are very real effects and that we even have to use in our satellite communication. If uh, It sounds very strange when we start talking about time dilation, when we talk about time ticking at different rates in different parts of the universe, but it's actually a very real effect that um, our Google Maps and our GPS would not work, would be 10 kilometers out per day if we did not include the effects of time dilation because our satellites uh, in a gravitational well. And the other things that need to be met is that the speed of light actually needs to remain constant for that two and a half million years if we're receiving light from the Andromeda galaxy. And also, the, um, yeah, as I said, the passage of time has to remain the same. Scott, we're going to hear a lot from scientists who are acknowledging that the data is coming from the space telescope and, uh, and of course, it'll be raw data and it's how you look at it. There'll be those th- that are theorising about galaxies being born, you know, in billions of years and uh, the way that time works. Why does the Big Bang Theory not work from the creationist perspective? Yeah, so the Big Bang Theory is a story about how everything came about. And just using naturalistic theories, we look at what we have now and we try and rewind time. And the reason that doesn't work for a Christian who believes in the Bible is we believe that there was a creator God that created everything that was fully functional, that was uh, able to do the processes that happen now. So when God created Adam and Eve, they were able to uh, pull from trees, pull in fruits. They were able to um, eat what the ground produced. Now, there didn't need to be the time for those things to grow. And, and the same with stars and planets. Uh, we'd say that planets and stars would have been there when God created them. Now, there are some inconsistencies that naturalistic scientists will have to, in fact, grapple with themselves. Uh, There's one I know that you've pointed out, that black holes, uh, some of those black holes are actually bigger than the Big Bang Theory even allows for. Uh, How do you describe black holes? And, of course, there'll be scientists looking for those black holes and what they actually do. Yeah, so it's very specifically the supermassive black holes. So these are the very, very large black holes. So um, there are black holes that are 10, 20, 30, 40 times the mass of the sun. And naturalistic theories and the Big Bang Theory can incorporate the uh, creation of them by uh, crashing in big neutron stars or very big stars uh, ending their life. Uh, There is a, a theory about how these can form But the problem with the supermassive black holes, now these are the ones that are found in the center of galaxies. So in the center of the Milky Way, our galaxy, there's the Sagittarius A star, and that's a black hole. And they're often hundreds and thousands of millions of times the mass of our sun. So they're very, very large, very high mass objects. Now, the problem with the Big Bang theory and supermassive black holes is if you, uh, in the beginning with the Big Bang, Uh, Everything is very spread out and sparse and uniform. And 
over time, things gather together by the force of gravity and they become bigger and bigger over time as they can um, accrete more and more material. Now, the problem is there's not enough time from the very start of the Big Bang's timeline to today to form these supermassive black holes. So this is a key question that scientists are hoping the James Webb Space Telescope will answer because they're thinking if we can peer into the very distant universe, which in their eyes is the very first stars, so the most distant stars are the first ones, then they can see if there were some strange conditions available that would enable supermassive black holes to be formed. So this is a yeah, very big problem for naturalism at the moment for Big Bang theorists, but of course it's not a problem in the biblical view. Not a problem in the biblical view, and uh, while all of this theorizing will go on, uh, you'll be looking very carefully at what scientists are saying in their discoveries. There's another big issue too, where researchers still don't know the details of how clouds of gas and dust collapse to form stars, or why most stars form in groups or exactly how planetary systems form. All of these sorts of things you'll be anticipating, Scott, will actually show a biblical view is stronger than any other theory. Yes, and we're, yeah, some of these problems we think for the Big Bang won't go away with new observations. So uh, the formation of stars is theorised to happen from gas collapse. And actually there's a number of very good astronomical images of uh, what they would say is different stages of stellar collapse. Um, but uh, with the planet formation, there's, uh, again, there's pictures where they would say these are different um, stages of the planet forming. But one of the big problems with planet formation is something called the meter size barrier. Um, basically, that says once you've managed to build a dust grain um, and you've built a little dust ball, so a dust, uh, a piece of dust has gone around space a lot and it's built up a, you know, just to a few millimeters in diameter. To go to c centimeters and then meters and then hundreds of meters of diameter, it's very difficult. Um, the, pro the naturalistic processes don't allow that to happen. So you actually have to have a big planet, like uh, kilometers and tens of kilometers, maybe hundreds of kilometers of diameter before the force of gravity is strong enough to accrete more material onto it. It's a bit like if you think about the Earth and asteroids coming and meteoroids coming and hitting the Earth, that's because the Earth has such a decent amount of mass that by gravitational attraction, we're able to attract these other pieces of rock and, and make the Earth heavier. But the problem is if you imagine a astronomical object or you imagine the Earth was just much, much smaller, uh, we wouldn't attract all of these asteroids and meteors. We wouldn't have this problem. Um, so that is a problem for naturalistic theories because the way planets form is they start by just small dust grains in the theory of the Big Bang. But there's a, there's a big gap here where there's no decent theory of how that small dust grain will develop into a planetesimal that's tens or hundreds of kilometres in diameter. Does it seem too simplistic, Scott, that there is a creator of the universe? Because while everyone's coming up with the sorts of theories, anything but a creator God, what are your thoughts here for acknowledging a creator who is much more complex and more knowing than any of those scientists. What are your thoughts here for the rarely considered idea that God made the universe the way it is? Yeah, well, to me, it's it's always seemed obvious that um, the complexity of life, the complexity of 
how the earth works, the complexity of the ecosystems which we live in point to a designer, point to a creator. Um, anywhere where we see code or intelligence put into design, we always understand that there must have been a creator that's done that. Even if we look at a, a building and its structure, we can see this structure and this design points to the idea that this is not a random natural process, but there's a creator. And I, I, one of the really interesting things we talked about last time, Neil, and is related to the James Webb Space Telescope is they're going to be looking for exoplanets. And now we've found over 4,000 exoplanets. So they're planets that orbit stars other than our own. And one of the interesting things about that is we've found all these planets, but none of them are like the Earth. Uh, they're all barren wastelands. None of them have the chemical composition in their atmospheres to allow life to, to happen. None of them have liquid water on their surfaces. There's so many amazing design attributes to our Earth, in, especially with its ability to enable us to live here, that none of these exoplanets have met, and they're far from it. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting to see that we have this design, but even more interesting to see that actually the Earth is very special uh, and everything we've observed is nothing like it. I'm sure there are going to be plenty more conversations, Scott, over the years to come around the James Webb Space Telescope. It's the successor to the Hubble Telescope. You'll be following along things there. Scott Devlin, a geophysicist and a student of astrophysics, he's a speaker and marketing coordinator for Creation Ministries. And for listeners who want to read more, there'll be articles that you can read, a creation position on all of these things. And for some, it's a real challenge to faith. But when you start to get into the detail, you might be surprised just how much sense it makes that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. There is a searchable database in the archives at creation.com. You'll be able to find articles on these sorts of things we're talking about today. Scott Devlin, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us. I'll point listeners to creation.com. Creation.com. Scott, thanks for updating us today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. Good to be with you again. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 